This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, May 4th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Normally, U.S. trading relationships are neither particularly contentious or newsworthy, but the manner in which the Trump administration has chosen to pursue better trade deals, that is, hiking tariffs and inviting retaliation, may threaten long-standing relationships while raising prices for consumers and harming domestic industries in the process. Scott Lincecum is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. We talked about the future of trade this week. Among the claims that I hear with respect to trade are, look, I'm all for free trade. And then they uh, say, but China doesn't practice free trade. When the United States, when individuals in the United States go into business in China, there is inevitably this transfer of uh, intellectual property of engineering designs, of some perhaps trade secrets that end up in Chinese hands. And then they're suddenly, uh, you know, once the deal is done, they've got all this information, they turn it into products and they send it back to the United States and we're left holding the bag. And that that seems like an argument that has uh, a fair bit of currency in the United States. Yeah. And I I think that there's a, like like a lot of Trump policies um, or Trump administration policies, there's a nugget of truth there. Um, You know, I think there's little doubt that, especially in the past, um, that there, you know, uh, there were problems with the Chinese intellectual property regime, um, particularly with respect to uh, what we call technology transfer. Um, You know, the idea that, look, if you want to invest in China, you have to hand over your trade secrets to your JV partner, that kind of thing. And you have to have a JV partner. Um, Now, I'd be remiss not to note that that this has actually gotten better over the last few years, uh, that according to a lot of uh, third party adjudicators of of intellectual property rights policies, uh, the Chinese have improved dramatically. Um, in terms of these types of IPR violations and others. Uh, But that said, you know, there is a, I think, legitimate complaint out there, particularly with respect to, uh, you know, theft of trade secrets. There is the legitimate complaint about uh, uh, past Chinese intellectual property rights policies. So that's that's, uh, the nugget of truth. The problem, and it's a huge problem, is that the solutions offered so far uh, probably won't do much to actually solve the problem. And the reason for that is that um, we have this system, the World Trade Organization and WTO dispute settlement, that uh, members can go and and hash out their their beefs. You know they can they can go and and file formal complaints against each other and they're adjudicated over a couple of years. And the WTO will send out a a, a report, uh, you know, deciding whether those the challenge measures are inconsistent and whether the uh, the uh, the defendant of sorts um, is is in violation of its W two obligations and and should rectify it. Now, uh, the, the United States has successfully used this over 100 times uh, overall. It's one of the most frequent users of the system. It wins about 90 percent of the time, um, and it has been very successful with respect to China. And so the the WTO system um, has the United States has had numerous victories, I, I, you know, a dozen or more. And 
the most important part is that the Chinese government complies with those decisions. Um, that what, whether it is due to the potential threat of retaliation by the United States or the desire to be seen as a, a good global citizen, not as a, a trade scoff law, the Chinese government um, complies. Now, they don't comply perfectly uh, and they don't comply always. Nobody does, not including the United States, but they do a pretty good job. And so the most of the intellectual property complaints you hear, either from the Trump administration or from you know people on the street, <laughs> to the extent they're interested in intellectual property rights and trade, uh, can be handled by the WTO system. And in fact, China, as part of its accession to the WTO, when it joined the WTO, actually made some WTO plus some extra commitments when it comes to intellectual property uh, on things that were specifically targeted by the United States in. In, a, in this current Section 301 investigation that's going on. So um, the, the clear, the obvious way to go is to bring a, a WTO dispute challenging Chinese policies that they believe have violated the obligations I just mentioned um, and to get a coalition of the willing of sorts. You know, the United States is not the only one that has these complaints. Uh, the Europeans, the Japanese, there are many other countries. So you could, in, a, in an ideal world, one in which I'm calling the shots, <laughs> uh, you have a situation where the United States gets together with several countries and they file a very large uh, WTO complaint on intellectual property rights. And they let that complaint play out over the a couple of years. And uh, if and when they win, uh, they they proceed to uh, push the Chinese to comply with that decision. And, uh, you know, if, if past is prologue, you would see a pretty decent rate of Chinese compliance. So that's the, that's the perfect system. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the, the path that's chosen is that the United States did file a WTO case as part of the Section 301 decision, but it's a very, very narrow case on a few licensing issues. But the headline thing they've done is publish a, a list of of about $50 billion worth of Chinese goods and threatened a bunch of tariffs uh, on those goods. Now, that, of course, uh, is about the exact opposite of going to the WTO. Of course, it's unilateral. Of course, it's an immediate threat to your own consumers. Um, but very importantly, it it's unlikely to uh, actually work in terms of changing Chinese behavior simply because, you know, look, the, the Chinese government is a, it's a, it's, <laughs> it's a sovereign government that has its own domestic political considerations and uh, would, is very unlikely to be seen as caving uh, directly to all of these U.S. demands. It doesn't seem like the Trump administration is actually that concerned. I mean, it strikes me that the, tr the Trump administration would be might actually be happier if uh, instead of going through the WTO and winning their case at the WTO on, on any number of issues, they seem actually more concerned with perhaps tearing down the WTO and sort of existing trade infrastructure for dealing with disputes. Is that wrong? I, I mean, I think that's a valid uh, way to look at it. You know, I, the, I, I certainly don't want to get in their heads, but the fact is that they really don't, they really haven't shown a significant regard for the multilateral system, which is a real shame. Um, you know, regardless of, of what you think of the WTO's flaws, and it does have flaws, um, it's really 
undeniable that the multilateral trading system, starting with the GATT in the 1940s and going through the WTO, which was created in the mid-90s, has created uh, trillions of dollars of wealth um, for the United States and for a lot of other countries. And that the WTO dispute settlement system, um, which has is involved over 500, now approaching 600 disputes, has been uh, really the crown jewel in international law in terms of um, not infringing on domestic sovereignty, um, still maintaining this kind of voluntary system where nations go into the system uh, voluntarily and they comply voluntarily. Um, and uh, th and th it has actually produced good results in terms of compliance. You know, nobody, again, is 100% perfect when it comes to compliance, but nations tend to voluntarily comply, and they do that because they value the system so much. Now, when you have a, a big player that stops valuing the system, well, that's where problems can emerge. And obviously, you know, it, that, that voluntary kind of iterative process, we call it, where uh, repeated compliance builds even greater support for the system, that can break down. So what do we expect to see with respect to the reverberations of the, the Wilbur Ross, uh, Peter Navarro um, plan with respect to trade? Uh, you know, how might that affect the global trading system? Right. So, so far, disaster has been averted, um, but there are clouds on the horizon. And the, the fact is that U.S. unilateralism that so blatantly flies in the face of WTO rules, whether it be the most favored nation principle, which says you're supposed to treat all WTO members equally, um, or tariff bindings, which say you're not supposed to raise your tariffs above a certain level um, that you've committed to, that you've voluntarily committed to. Um, or uh, the invocation of national security for what are clearly domestic protection measures, as is in the case of steel and aluminum. You know, these types of things um, really strain the system and they strain the credibility of the system. Now, so far, uh, the system has not broken down. You know, we're only 18 months in, right? And the truth is that this is a uh, – the United States itself is still using the WTO system when uh, when it wants uh, in terms of offense. Uh, you know, we're, we've have filed a couple disputes. We are still litigating. We haven't totally walked away. Um, but again, the, the key point about the WTO is to understand just how fragile it is. It's intentionally fragile because uh, sovereign nations are not going to agree to a system where there is some sort of coercive international body that has, you know, little troops in blue helmets that, that show up at your doorstep when you don't comply with a, a rule or an adverse decision. So it's kind of a very loose system intentionally, um, but but members comply voluntarily again because they see this value in doing so. So if 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 we keep um, uh, ignoring ignoring the rules and keep ignoring the system, uh, you're, you, the breakdown's uh, likely, and and that's of course. Uh, amplified when it comes to the United States. You know, it's the biggest guy in the room or one of them at least. And so um, it it is a, a, a bit scary. And the hope uh, is that we can avoid that. The hope is that there are some fits and starts, but overall um, the damage is, is minimal and, you know, that we, we all kind of uh, – 
shuffle along, um, albeit in a slightly weaker place. But there, there's no doubt that when it comes to uh, particularly the national security issues, um, but also the mere structure of the dispute settlement system, there are um, currently some problems with uh, seating new judges in the WTO appellate body. There are, uh, you know, the way that we do trade agreements is, you know, we generally agree to, you know, rounds of lower tariffs, uh, but countries typically will reserve the right to raise them. Uh, are we likely to see that kind of sort of, I guess, it's a reactionary uh, raising of tariffs globally in response to the manner in which uh, the this administration has chose to chosen to pursue trade? Yeah, I I mean I hope not. Um the now the the good news is that most WTO members still want to abide by the general framework of the rules. And the rules do generally limit the ability of members to impose uh, tariffs um, uh, or raise their tariffs. They can only do so up to what we call a bound rate. Now, for some countries, particularly developing countries, those rates are higher, and that's actually a legitimate bone to pick with the WTO system. Um, but they can't just simply uh, target the United States, for example, and start raising their tariffs. Again, assuming they want to comply with the general rules. However, and this is the big however, there are exceptions. And what we're seeing play out um, the, in the beginnings of this play out is members starting to exploit those exceptions um, or at least pondering uh, said exploitation in in order to maintain what they believe to be the balance uh, of concessions of, of trade opening uh, agreements that all the members have made. And so, you know, so far it hasn't been uh, it hasn't been a, a problem. But, you know, you have to consider, you know, the, the possibility of a point at which everybody just throws up their hands and says, well, to heck with this. Um, it's just simply not we're not getting what we're not getting anything out of the system anymore uh, because everybody is exploiting these exceptions. Everybody is invoking national security. No one is complying with WTO rulings. And at that point, the, you know, the whole thing becomes worthless and, and that would be a travesty. All right. Let's talk about some T-shirts. Um, I'm reading from a picture of Orrin Hatch, a noted senator, uh, holding up a T-shirt and it reads – Tariffs not only impose immense economic costs, but also fail to achieve their primary policy aims and foster political dysfunction along the way. Now, you can turn that into an acronym, and it's a lot of characters for an acronym. But um, what? how did this get started? Yeah, so the miracles of social media um, is really the easiest explanation. The... So uh, right when the whole tariff debate was really kicking off, so I think early March, give or take, um, you know, once these steel and aluminum tariffs were were announced, and but I think you know, and this China stuff was heating up. Um, President Trump went to I think it was Pennsylvania to hold some sort of uh, special election rally, um, and uh, there was a woman in the audience wearing a T-shirt, and, and it said something like "Tariffs are great," you know. And so I, I saw this uh, on Twitter uh, on a Saturday morning, and of course was just horribly depressed, um, given the <laughs> the uh, long, long history that uh, we have with respect to the problems um, raised by tariffs. 
And in fact, you know, I wrote a paper for Cato last year just on the historical failures of American protectionism. So in a in a fit of uh, angry or depressed creative uh, genius, I, I made a mock-up of a T-shirt that would be the counter T-shirt uh, that that's, says, you know, tariffs not only impose immense economic costs, but also fail to achieve their prim- primary policy aims and foster political dysfunction along the way. Intentionally wordy, intentionally ridiculous. Of course, the joke, the inside joke being that's precisely the trade debate we have. Um, one side can yell tariffs, yay, and the other side starts having to talk about seen versus unseen costs and all of that kind of stuff and the audience falls asleep. So the funniest part about this is that another person I so I tweeted out uh, this photo as a joke. Uh, another person on Twitter actually picked it up and through the miracles of of e-commerce, he had an Amazon site and he posted uh, he created the t-shirt. You can create these mock-up t-shirts on Amazon. And uh, next thing you know, uh, we're selling t-shirts. And as a joke, um, or at not even, we, we decided that the best thing to do would be that every penny of profit would go to free market economics education over at FEE.org. And we so far have raised about 2200 so $2,200. And, you know, there's still a little bit of revenue coming in. And so somehow these shirts have made it, uh, you know, up into the into the Senate and elsewhere. It's, it's kind of been a pretty funny ride. So for the people who wear uh, the T-shirt, tariffs are great or are at least uh, willing to be convinced of that position. You know, we're, we're seeing downstream producers of uh, imported products like steel and aluminum. I'm thinking of American keg uh, and exporters of products like U.S. soybeans, for example, who are going to be taking a hit uh, if uh, tariff policy continues at its current uh, in its current direction. Is there going to be enough of those downstream losses to really uh, to stop this, to to make the administration rethink, wow, there actually are some significant costs and potentially costly political dysfunction that we'll have to deal with. Well, in, and yeah, and, and that's really been the, the most interesting or I guess depressing part of this is that, you know, the T-shirt was warning of the inevitable problems that tariffs and protectionism bring um, based again kind of on my paper and on reams and reams and reams of scholarly research. Um, Doug Irwin just wrote a 750-page book on the history of American trade policy and protectionism and all the failures um, as well. And so, you know, the the somewhat a sad thing is that we've now seen the T-shirt come to life of sorts. Um, you know, we're actually now seeing headlines about manufacturing surveys or the Fed Beige Book and others talking about downstream manufacturers really complaining about high metals costs and about how, um, you know, they've been cutting back on on hiring and, and you know, the um, – there have been some some pretty open signs of these having a, a traumatic effect on on downstream industries, and then of course the targets of the retaliation, uh, particularly in the American agricultural sector, um, uh, Chinese retaliation or threatened retaliation by other WTO members, um, is also causing problems. You know, markets, particularly international markets, hate uncertainty, and so even tariffs that haven't even been imposed yet but have been threatened um, are injecting a massive amount of uncertainty, and so we've seen um, a, a 
significant shift in sourcing um, away from the United States when it comes to agriculture. Um, and you're seeing that type of uncertainty in the U.S. market and the downstream sector. So, and then, of course, on political dysfunction, we're, we're now seeing, you know, ramp dump uh, tariff lobbying and all this kind of great stuff, which, I mean, literally is straight out of um, the, the late 19th century. Um, I wrote about my paper about how there was all of this just, you know, uh, uh, nitpicky tariff lobbying it was a very kind of you know nasty little system. Since FDR uh, and prior to Trump, the United States had a general understanding about how trade ought to go, and um, a whole lot of policymaking authority was delegated by Congress to the White House. Is there any appetite now that you can see? To rein that in. Yeah. And that goes back to the the tariffs are great T-shirt. Um, there doesn't appear to be much of a political appetite. You know, I think there are a few Republicans in Congress, um, you know, who who have offered legislation that would essentially claw back a little bit of the trade authority that Congress has delegated to the president over the years. Um, you know, Congress has the ultimate constitutional authority over tariff policy, Article 1, Section 8. Um, but over the years, um, for, for what was thought to be actually free trade reasons, um, has delegated a lot of that power to the president. The president was thought to be the most free trade guy in the room, right? And uh, that, of course, has been turned on its head. Unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be a lot of appetite for 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 changing the current system uh, because of the political implications of doing so. Um, you know, look, the fact is that Republicans, most Republicans are not going to want to take on President Trump, um, regardless of whether there is a very legitimate legal and economic uh, non-Trump reason for for uh, tweaking the system. Um, it doesn't matter. That would be, you know, trumpeted in the media as being an anti-Trump thing. And of course, most of the GOP isn't going to do that. And then congressional Democrats, on the other hand, um, despite overwhelming poll numbers now for Democratic voters being supportive of of foreign trade, of free trade, um, the Democratic Party still has no appetite either, um, you know, because the Democratic Party, particularly the leadership, um, is still wed to this kind of old um, model, this 19, I shouldn't say too old, but, you know, 1990s, 2000s model where they were catering more to labor unions and uh, a bit to the environmental community. And they were kind of the, they were the protectionists. So you're really not seeing a, a big surge in in democratic leadership. Now, the, the interesting thing going on, though, is that we are starting to see a few younger Democratic congressional candidates coming out uh, vocally against Trump's tariffs. Now, obviously, part of that is just because they're attached to Trump. But the arguments they're making are pretty darn interesting. They're they're talking about downstream economic effects. They're talking about the regressivity of tariffs, you know, how they, they disproportionately hurt poor Americans versus uh, rich ones um, and how, you know, they they engender all this type of cronyism stuff. It's stuff that really could play uh, with with a lot of, I think, rank and file Democrats. Um, now, whether that those arguments actually um, take over the party, you know, I think it's anybody's guess. I, I'm not too optimistic right now. But, you you know, these things happen over over years, not over months. So, um, you know, we'll see. Scott Lincecum is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 